For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. From Meat Eater's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review, presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. Scientists in the United Kingdom believe oral contraceptives can be used to keep the invasive gray squirrel population in check. Gray squirrels were shipped from the U.S. to the U.K. in the 1870s, and they've been wreaking havoc on the native red squirrel population ever since. Gray squirrels outcompete red squirrels for food and shelter, and they carry a disease called squirrel pox. Grays are immune to squirrel pox, but reds are not. These two factors have led to a drop in the red squirrel population from 3.5 million at its peak to just 140,000 today. To reduce the gray squirrel population, the Animal and Plant Health Agency has developed an oral contraceptive along with a specialized feeding hopper. The hopper's weighted door is designed to give gray squirrels access to the contraceptive, but keep other woodland creatures out. I know what you're saying, and no, this story clearly has nothing to do with Roe v. Wade, okay? This is a government-funded program that has a facility where squirrels can enter if they wish to and get free birth control, okay? It's got nothing to do with Roe v. Wade, all right? And for all you small game hunters out there rolling your eyes and rumbling your tummies, yes, there are other methods out there, but this government program isn't about choice, okay? And, as we've learned with feral hogs here in the U.S., Hunting often isn't enough to eradicate an invasive species. The animals reproduce far too quickly, and lethal removal isn't always palatable in urban areas. We're going to keep you up to date on this one. If the heavy door to free contraception is plan A, it does make you wonder if there's a plan B. This week, we've got legislation. Feeding the animals in Bigfoot made me do it. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week... 
and my week was super awesome. I joined Chester and Seth for the last leg of the Montana walleye tour, set up the Black Series camper, and knocked out breakfast sandwiches every morning for the crew. You'll be able to see the whole list of highs and lows of the walleye angling tournament life soon enough on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. I dusted off the 13 fishing walleye rods myself, managed to get a few small ones and some really nice perch, which I filleted, and like a good grandson does, gave promptly over to my grandmother, who at 90-some years old is still a Scandinavian Midwesterner and thinks the walleye is about as fine as freshwater fish-eating gets. Then, I hitched up the fancy independently suspensioned wagon and covered some 1,700 miles of eastern Montana with my friend Seth Reed from Steel USA, visiting ranchers and farmers enrolled in Montana's block management program. I'm not going to lie, if I could do this as a full-time job, I would. Haver, Chinook, Zortman, Killer Burger and Winnet, Glendive, Weebo, Baker, Plevna, Mile City, great conversations, beautiful scenery. It was a phenomenal road trip. Went a little too fast, but I'll tell you, Montana was putting on a show. Lots of unexpected summer rain had things green. At the same time, I could have fed a small town on the grasshopper protein on the front bumper alone. But I'll get into that and a whole lot more in the near future with a dedicated block management private land public access episode where you will get to hear from some of these landowners yourself. Again, one of the most enjoyable things I've done. Can't wait for you to hear it. Should have the episode out just before the Montana Antelope Archery Opener here in the state, which would be prior to August 15th. Moving on to a controversy-filled legislative desk. You may remember all the way back in episode 125 when I told you about the Grassland Act. Today, I have more details. The North American Grasslands Conservation Act is designed to protect grassland ecosystems that have seen a 53 million acre decline over the last 10 years. Over 70% of grasslands have disappeared thanks to agriculture development and invasive plants. Pheasant populations have dropped by 70%. Bobwhite quail have declined by 83%. And the overall grassland bird population is down over 40%. Yes. This is happening on our watch right now. The Grasslands Act would authorize $350 million per year to fund a grant program. These grants would be issued to farmers and ranchers, along with state, local, and tribal governments, to implement strategies to protect and restore grassland ecosystems. These projects can include voluntary conservation easements, restoration and management, such as prescribed burns and invasive species control. Much like the Wetlands Act incentivized wetland managers to implement sustainable conservation strategies, the Grasslands Act would give farmers and ranchers incentives to plant native grasses and improve habitat. Since we covered this proposal back in October, the bill's sponsors have added two additional components. The bill will create a Grasslands Conservation Council to recommend and approve projects as well as Grasslands Inventory to map progress. Both of these features will make sure the approval process is transparent and streamlined, and it's easy to see how the money is benefiting the grassland ecosystems. The bill has been sponsored by the National Deer Alliance, Pheasants Forever, the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, among many other organizations. $350 million is a big ask, especially these days, and the bill is still a long way from passing. My sources tell me that several Republicans are thinking about supporting the bill, but they're concerned about the price tag, especially in the economy. 
Others would have liked to see a smaller bill to develop a grasslands conservation strategy and then build that into a grant program, rather than jump right into a big appropriations bill. It's important to remember that this is what's called an authorizations bill. It authorizes spending, but it doesn't require spending. So, while it's a big step in the right direction, there's still time to work out funding. If you want my opinion, I think hunters should support the Grasslands Act. If you're a pheasant, elk, or pronghorn hunter, farmer, or a rancher, this is one of the most important bills of your lifetime. Hunters love the habitat, but we can't do it alone. We need the farmers and the ranchers. And the only way the farmers and the ranchers are going to keep those farms and ranches intact and prevent them from getting covered up in god-awful condos is to get more revenue streams, which the Grasslands Conservation Act will provide. It protects a crucial ecosystem that's vital to the health of the animals we love to hunt, and it does it on a voluntary, incentives-based basis that doesn't require retiring your pastures. You can still graze and hay, just don't plow the grass under for short-lived, short-rooted soil deteriorating and moisture-sucking plants. So get on the phone with your U.S. representative. We need more Congress critters to sponsor this legislation to get it across the finish line. Give them a call and tell them you support the North American Grasslands Conservation Act. We are going to look back on this one and be happy we made it happen. Moving on. Anglers in Alabama and Mississippi are up in arms over a new federal rule that would significantly reduce the red snapper catch limit in those two states. According to the new rule, the red snapper catch limit in Mississippi would drop from 154,000 pounds per year to just over 59,000 pounds. In Alabama, the limit would drop from 1.1 million pounds to 558,000 pounds. In other Gulf Coast states, the annual red snapper limits would stay about the same. Roger Wicker, a U.S. senator from Mississippi, says that the new rule would likely cut the red snapper season down to less than three weeks. He argues that the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, is basing their new rule on faulty data collection methods. He believes NOAA is overestimating how many red snapper boats are on the water each year. NOAA regulators, on the other hand, say the new rule is necessary because each state measures their annual red snapper take differently. They argue that Mississippi and Alabama tend to generate much lower landing estimates than the federal survey, and the new rule calibrates those limits accordingly. If you'd like to learn more and weigh in, check out the link in the episode description. The comment period ends July 28th, so you only have a few more days. There's another controversy brewing in Michigan over who has the authority to set hunting seasons and bag limits. As in most states, Michigan has both a Natural Resources Commission and a Department of Natural Resources. The commission is a bipartisan group composed of individuals appointed by the governor. They work in consultation with the scientists at the Department of Natural Resources to determine fish and game regulations. They're usually less susceptible to political pressure and have a mandate to make decisions based on sound science. The controversy stems from a memo released by Michigan Department of Natural Resources Director Dan Eichinger, in which he claimed that the DNR, not the commission, has the authority to regulate hunting seasons after the first season for a species has been established. I won't get into the legal arguments right now, but here's what this would mean on the ground. The commission is more likely to approve hunts for species like wolves and sandhill cranes 
while the Department of Natural Resources is more sensitive to broader political pressures around both issues. The DNR might support these hunts, but they're more worried about political backlash and whether the hunts would trigger Endangered Species Act restrictions. If the DNR prevails, it might be harder for those controversial seasons to get established. If you live in Michigan and want to weigh in, send a note to the DNR, the Commission, and the Governor, Gretchen Whitmer. Finally, a quick update for you on Representative Andrew Clyde's Return Act. If you recall from a previous episode, the Return Act would dismantle the current Pittman-Robertson structure by repealing the excise tax on firearms and ammunition. This excise tax has generated $1 billion for conservation work each year the past few years. Representative Clyde's bill would try to replace that money with other sources of funding but cap that funding at $800 million. The bill originally had 53 co-sponsors, it bumped up to like 58, but then in the last few days, four of those original co-sponsors have withdrawn their support. Two of those sponsors are part of Representative Clyde's Republican delegation from Georgia. Katie McCaleb, the communications director at Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, told me that it's unusual for even a single member to back out from a bill, so it's safe to assume that the Return Act is not finding a lot of support. I will tell you that we updated the article of the Return Act at TheMeatEater.com to reflect some changes. I screwed up on the fishing-related references in the original article. Clyde's bill has nothing to do with fishing-related items. Oddly enough, Representative Clyde's office has reached out in a very friendly way to help me rewrite what I got wrong. And my own state representative, Matt Rosendale, has yet to respond in any way with why he is co-sponsoring this bill. Better customer service in Georgia than here in my home state, I guess. Moving on to the Don't Feed the Wild Animals desk. Suburban living can be tough. Neighbors mow their lawns at ungodly hours, dogs bark all night, and worst of all, kindly old folks feed the wildlife. Thanks to listeners Ben Wyatt, Chance Platt, and Jake Hoover for bringing these stories to our attention. First up, a New York man has angered his neighbors after his bird feeding habit attracted coyotes, foxes, and rodents to the peaceful neighborhood in Sodus Point, New York. 71-year-old Don Antle regularly feeds the neighborhood birds, squirrels, and ducks with 23 sheet pans of peanuts and bird food. The retiree lays out the pans on his front yard and watches as the neighborhood wildlife descends on the smorgasbord. Side note, smorgasbord is a Swedish word meaning bread and butter table. That's a table with bread and butter on it. Not a table made from bread and butter, though I can see the appeal. Whatever you call it, Antle's neighbors are none too happy. They say the food spills into the street, the animals block traffic, and rodents have invaded their homes. In a note posted online by a local media outlet, one of Antle's neighbors begs him to stop feeding the wildlife because the animals are bringing peanuts into the yards of people with peanut allergies. They're quoted by saying, We know the intentions are good for the animals, but it is becoming dangerous. I'm sure the intention of Mr. Antle was not to biologically weaponize squirrels, but, you know, our actions have consequences, sometimes totally unintended. Antle has been feeding wildlife in his neighborhood since 2011, but his operation has grown so large that he's attracted attention from law enforcement. A 2019 ordinance stated that residents can only have two bird feeders, and the feeders must be five feet off the ground. 
Antle has been ticketed several times for violating this ordinance, but he pays the fine and continues to set out food. According to the most recent report, Antle hasn't stopped feeding the animals. On the same page, but a different state, a Houston couple has also earned the ire of their neighbors for feeding the local ducks. But this HOA isn't messing around. George and Kathleen Rowe were sued earlier this month by the Lakeland Community Homeowners Association for a whopping $250,000, which would be enough to put those ducks on a plane and have them migrate around the planet a few times. The suit claims the Rose engage in, quote, unclean, unhealthy, or untidy activities, and that the ducks poop in the neighborhood and tear up gardens. Kathleen Rowe has been feeding ducks in the neighborhood for 10 years, and she's refused to stop even after being told such activity is prohibited. The HOA is asking the court to make the couple pay to clean up the neighborhood and order them to stop feeding the ducks. Of course, there are two sides to every story. Kathleen told local media that her neighbors didn't have a problem with her hobby until a new neighbor moved in and launched a campaign against her. HOA politics. Side note to the listener that sent the picture of the shirt that says defund the HOA. Thank you. Kathleen goes on to say, there are just a lot of hateful people that just do not like ducks. And me, I just love them. Kathleen and her husband have decided to sell their home and move away while they fight the lawsuit. Kathleen worries the ducks won't have anyone to feed them, but she has a solution. If there's any way I can grab a couple of them and take them with me, I will. Now, Kathleen needs to know it is illegal, even in the state of Texas where you can have a tiger, to capture any game animal or bird from the wild without a proper permit. I'm not sure that Kathleen knows that, so I hope she listens to the podcast. Last one for you. A man who has dubbed himself the Deer Whisperer is feeding white-tailed deer outside his suburban home in Largo Vista, Texas. His YouTube channel currently has 326,000 subscribers, and as far as I can tell, all his videos show him feeding deer without a shirt on. I don't know why he doesn't wear a shirt. Maybe the deer ate it. Maybe he thinks the deer are attracted to a sunburned, tattooed upper body. It's a mystery. I haven't seen any reports about his neighbor's reactions, but if he listened to Cal's Week in Review, he'd know that he's not doing those deer any favors. Wild animals that become acclimated to people are much more likely to become aggressive, have conflicts with humans, and be put down. I understand that it makes for good social media content, but none of the folks we've talked about today are helping the animals they care so much about. Squirrels, ducks, and deer can find food on their own. If you think an animal is in trouble, call your fish and game agency. They have professionals who can assess the situation and know whether or not to intervene. Moving on to the Biodiversity Desk. A new report from an international conservation organization claims that one in five people on planet Earth rely on wild species for food and income, and that over 10,000 wild species are harvested for food. I eat wild game almost exclusively. I know I'm in the minority here in the U.S., but worldwide, billions of people still rely on wild plants and animals for their daily calories. These folks live mostly in rural areas of developing countries, and 70% of the world's poor are directly dependent on wild species. The paper was put together by 85 experts and published by the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, or IPBES. They say that while 1,341 wild mammal species are threatened by hunting, 
the sustainability of hunting varies widely from region to region. In areas with sustainable hunting practices, the game animals have high population growth rates and ecological adaptability, and hunting is well-managed. Think white-tailed deer in the U.S. if you need a comparison. The most targeted species for subsistence hunters are large-bodied mammals. These mammals account for 55-75% to of the world's terrestrial wild meat biomass, while small game comprises the remaining 25-45%. to Squirrel hunters know that it's tough to compete with, say, elk hunters when comparing calories spent to calories earned. I've hunted squirrels all day with only a few pounds of meat to show for it. If calories are my main goal, elk or deer are a much more logical choice, and that logic applies in other countries as well. This is a big paper with lots of interesting details, but it should remind us that even in a world where we can grow lab-grown meat, wild places and wild animals still matter to billions of people. Moving on to the Wolf Desk. The Washington State Fish and Wildlife Commission recently voted 5-4 to strike down a proposal that would have made it more difficult for landowners to kill wolves in the state. Commissioner James Anderson said, I think a strict rule at this time would be counterproductive. I think it would be an economic hardship. The rule proposed that before wolves would be killed for attacking livestock, the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife would need to confirm that livestock owners had implemented appropriate non-lethal deterrence. The proposal would have also created chronic conflict zones with area-specific criteria for the use of non-lethal and lethal measures. The commission took up the proposal after Washington Governor Jay Inslee directed Washington wildlife officials to kill fewer wolves. We must find new methods to better support coexistence between Washington's livestock industry and gray wolves in our state. The status quo of annual lethal removal is simply unacceptable, said the governor. The commission apparently disagreed, probably because the term coexistence is mostly relegated to Disney movies at this point. As, you know, coexistence in the wild means sometimes you eat the bear and sometimes the bear eats you. The Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife will continue to manage wolves under the wolf livestock protocols which have been developed in the 14 years since wolves naturally returned to the state. The current protocols still expect landowners to implement deterrence measures, but they don't impose a hard and fast rule that applies to every situation. That vote has already been taken. But over in Michigan, residents have an opportunity to influence how wolves will be managed in their state. The Michigan Department of Natural Resources is updating its wolf management plan this year, and they're asking for public feedback in an online questionnaire. The plan was first developed in 2008, but hasn't been updated since 2015. The current draft of the plan lays out four goals. To maintain a viable wolf population, facilitate wolf-related benefits, minimize wolf-related conflicts, and conduct science-based and socially responsible management. I encourage you to read the 131-page document for yourself, but I want to zoom in on that first goal, to maintain a viable population. The plan currently defines viable as at least 200 wolves in the state. However, that's not a population goal. Quote, This plan does not identify a target population size, nor does it establish an upper limit for the number of wolves in the state. The document continues, and I think this part is really important. As a result, public preferences regarding levels of positive and negative wolf-human interactions 
will be an important consideration within the adaptive management framework when managing wolf abundance. In other words, the DNR will work to maintain a 200 wolf minimum, but they'll be looking to public opinion to determine any official or unofficial max population levels. Which brings us back to this online survey. If you live in Michigan and want to weigh in, check out the link in this episode description or just Google Michigan Wolf Survey. Don't wait until the plan has been finalized and then cry and moan that they didn't listen. Fill out the survey, contact the DNR, and make sure they know what you think. The survey will be available until August 4th. Moving on to the Bigfoot desk. An Oklahoma man has been charged with first-degree murder for killing his noodling buddy, who says he was about to feed him to Bigfoot. If you'd like to take a second to digest that sentence, go ahead. 53-year-old Larry Sanders allegedly admitted to police that he killed his friend, Jimmy Knighton, while the two were noodling for catfish earlier this month. Noodling, for those unfamiliar, is a fishing technique that involves sticking your hand in catfish holes so the fish will bite your hand, then you grab them by the lip and pull them out. If you've never done this, it's amazing. A fantastic experience, and, you know, catfish are real tasty. Sanders told investigators that they were noodling along the South Canadian River when Knighton tried to run away. Knighton told Sanders that Bigfoot was coming to eat him, which Sanders didn't appreciate. Sanders punched Knighton. Knighton fought back with a stick, and the two wrestled around the mud for a while. Eventually, Sanders got the upper hand and choked Knighton to death on the bank of the river. Yes, to answer the obvious question, illegal drugs were involved. Investigators said that Sanders appeared to be, quote, under the influence of something. Sanders' daughter told police he seemed frantic when she saw him later that day, and he repeated the Bigfoot story to her as well. If something about Oklahoma and Bigfoot is ringing a bell, there's a reason. Oklahoma State Rep Justin Humphrey tried unsuccessfully last year to institute a Bigfoot hunting season. He said the season was about tracking, not killing Bigfoot, but you gotta wonder if maybe Knighton was onto something. Maybe Bigfoot is angry, and he started an Oklahoman hunting season on his own. That's all I've got for you. Thank you so much for listening. As per usual, let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods by writing in to A-S-K-C-A-L. That's AskCal at TheMeatEater.com. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance Axis deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis deer sticks, 
sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, venison.com. And use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order.